Please turn your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22, Deuteronomy 22, 13. I want to give you a little heads up that the next two passages in the book of Deuteronomy are going to be a little uncomfortable. This is what happens sometimes when you're committed to consecutive expositional preaching through books of the Bible like we are committed here at GCC. Sometimes things are harder than others. Uncomfortable. Today's passage is going to be especially uncomfortable for a couple reasons. Number one, the topic. The topic of sexual sin is uncomfortable. That's what this passage is about. Top to bottom. It's all about sexual sin. And that's not a topic that we naturally feel comfortable talking about. But I want you to know this. It is extremely important to God. It's extremely important to God. And our souls need to hear it. Second reason it's uncomfortable is the views on sex in this text are absolutely foreign to our society. Absolutely foreign. But I want you to realize that this represents God's inflexible standard on that thing He invented. Human sexuality. And as we unpack this text, I hope you sense, I want you to sense just how far we are from this standard as a society. And I also want you to realize how easily we can be lulled away from this standard by this sex-saturated culture that we live in. And the third reason it's uncomfortable today is that this passage is going to deal out conviction for everybody. Now, if you pay attention to this, conviction should be unavoidable. And the older you are, I think the harder that will be. And so let's pray now that God's Word and God's Spirit would have its full effect on our hearts. And that He would show us Christ. Let's pray. God in heaven, you are absolutely holy beyond our comprehension. And you are worthy, as we sung today, we, we, you're worthy of all praise and honor and glory and thanks. And you are worthy of our wholehearted obedience. And we have sinned against you. And we are unworthy to even draw near to you. If not for Christ. God, I ask that, that you would send your spirit here today. That the Holy Spirit of God would convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that most of all, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be glorified and praised. Help us to see the gravity of our sins so that we can see the glory of Christ. Only you can do this, Lord. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So open up your word to us. Speak, O Lord, 
as we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. Let's stand today for the reading of God's Word. Deuteronomy 22, verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman when I came near, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet, here it is. This is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And he shall be, she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house. And the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the woman of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring both of them out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed woman cried out for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man may shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Be seated. Deuteronomy 
is basically made up of three sermons by Moses before his death. And we're nearing the end of the second sermon, which is the largest sermon, which is essentially an exposition of the Ten Commandments that he started way back in chapter 5. And guess what? He's now working on expanding, uh, teaching, and elaborating on the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Two quick things to note about the Seventh Commandment. First of all, it's not just about adultery. It encompasses all sexual sin. God condemns every form of sex outside of the confines of biblical marriage between one man and one woman. The second thing to note about this commandment is that it is eternally binding on every single human. Last week, Ryan said that some of these commands were temporary. And some of these commands were for the nation of Israel only. And a good example is the verse right before where we started in verse 12 where it says, You shall make tassels for your garments. That's the law of God, right? Have you ever obeyed that? No. Are you going to go to hell because you're not wearing tassels right now? No. But why not? Why not? Why are you not accountable to verse 12, but you are accountable to verse 13 and everything else after it? And doesn't the new... Testaments clearly say that the Old Covenant is obsolete. Does that make the Seventh Commandment in today's passage obsolete? No. But why not? The Old Covenant was binding for the nation of Israel until Messiah came. But the Old Covenant naturally contained many of God's eternal standards of righteousness. And so just because Messiah has come, Christ has come, and the Old Covenant is obsolete, that does not make God's eternal standards of righteousness obsolete. And so how do you know the difference? Like, how do you know the difference between temporary laws for Israel and eternal laws for all of humanity? And one simple way is to look outside of the covenant with Israel and see how God held man accountable before and after Take the tassels, for example. Did God rain down fire and brimstone on Sodom because they did not wear tassels? No. That wasn't one. Did Jesus and his apostles warn the Jews and the Gentiles about their tassels? No. Does the book of Revelation talk about all these tassel-ignoring people that are getting thrown into the lake of fire on Judgment Day? No. What about sexual sin, though? Why did God destroy the world with a flood before the Old Covenant? Why? Sexual sin. Sodom and Gomorrah? Sexual sin. Why did Jesus say you better tear out your eye and cut off your hand and not go to hell? Sexual sin. What does Paul say to the Gentiles? It's going to, God's wrath is going to come on everybody for what? Sexual sin. And what does the book of Revelation list is one of the top reasons people are thrown into the lake of fire at the end on Judgment Day. 
sexual sin. Therefore, everything in this passage is absolutely worthy of our most urgent attention. I want you to understand that the structure of this passage, there's five cases here. I'm combining in the five cases of sexual sin and their connection to marriage. And we're going to look at all five, but I'm going to save the first one for last. All right, so we're going to start in verse 22, look at these cases, and then come back to the case in verse 13. So case number one is in verse 22, and it's pretty simple. This is adultery proper. This is sex with someone else's spouse. I want you to notice how all of these cases kind of define the status of the parties involved as it relates to marriage. Marriage, critical component here. Verse 22 is the very definition of adultery. A man is found lying with the wife of another man. The woman is cheating on her husband, and the man is stealing another man's wife. And notice, this is not a rumor, this is a fact. The couple is caught red-handed. Verse 25 says, the man is found. They have found out lying with one another. So this, this gives another principle that we've already seen in Deuteronomy 19, and that these charges can't be just uh, insinuations or accusations. They have to be proven. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall, shall a charge be established. A single witness shall not suffice. Deuteronomy 19 has already taught us that. And so here we are. The charge is adultery. The verdict is guilty. And the punishment is death. Both of them. You see that? Both of them are to be publicly executed. Verse 22. Both of them shall die. The man and the woman. No patriarchal favoritism. It's equal rights. Equal rights for execution if you are an adulterer. Once Guilt is established. Next step is death. No appeal. No plea. And no sacrifice for forgiveness. You just get dragged out into the street by your fellow citizens and stoned. Then maybe hung on a tree so everybody won't forget God's law. And then taken outside, cast away, and burned outside the city. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Because this is what we deserve, my friends. Jesus reminds us we've all committed adultery in our hearts. And the unbelieving world says, look at how brutal and barbaric this is. This is just two consenting adults just demonstrating love for one another. No harm, no foul. Well, God Almighty sees it different. God says adultery is evil. He says, purge the evil from Israel. That's what he says. Purge the evil from Israel. Put yourself in those shoes. This is a sin against God. Adultery, sexual sin, this is sin against God. Remember David? When he was guilty of adultery, he said, against you, O Lord, against you alone I have sinned. Why is that? It's because this is a rebellion against God. This is a rebellion against His created design. God invented sex 
for the multiplication of his image and for the mutual enjoyment of his people. And sexual sin is the very opposite of that. It's not for procreation. As a matter of fact, my goodness, sexual sin tries to prevent that at all costs, even to the point of killing unborn children. And it's not about mutual enjoyment. It's only about personal self-centered gratification. That's what sexual sin is. It's a sin against God's design and it's a shred, it just shreds one of God's most prized principles. And that is steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what marriage is supposed to be all about. It's a reflection of who God is, right? Steadfast loving and faithful. Sexual sin is not that. It's the opposite of that. It ain't steadfast. It ain't love. And it is not faithfulness. It's the epitome of unfaithfulness. And it trashes the gospel. That's what marriage is supposed to do. It's supposed to reflect the gospel. Sexual sin is not, hey, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Sexual sin is not, hey, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. No, it's, it's the opposite. It's, hey, wife, betray your husband. Hey, husband, get an upgrade on your wife. That's what sexual sin is. That's trashing the gospel. See, the gospel is how God envisions marriage. Adultery is how Satan wants it to look. So adultery is evil. Therefore, guess what? This law is good. This law is good. The seventh commandment and its threats, man, it actually helps restrain the sin and all the ruin that it causes. Think about that, man. You really think twice about sleeping around when you watch skulls get crushed by big rocks. You think twice about it. And guess what that does, man? Think of all the wrecked marriages and all the broken homes that this law would prevent if everybody would get behind it, if everybody would embrace this in the community. This is a good law. Second case is sex... With someone else's betrothed. And it's actually two cases in one. With one important difference. I want you to see that. Both of these cases in verses 23 through uh, 27. They both define the situation as someone having sex with somebody who is betrothed to another. Betrothed. What does that mean? That's, That's sort of like being engaged, but it's a lot more formal. It actually means that there's a covenant been made between the two families. The bride price has been paid. The groom has gone off now to work to establish a home for his future bride, while the bride stays back at her father's house until the wedding. And this is the equivalent of being married, minus one thing, minus the consummation. Verse 23 describes her as betrothed. Verse 24 describes her as a wife. And so according to God's law, a betrothed woman is the same as a married woman. Therefore, if someone's caught having sex, it's treated just like adultery. Assuming the sex is consensual. Assuming it's consensual. Because that's the big difference between these two scenarios. Look at scenario number one, verse 23. It says, if a man meets her in the city 
and lies with her. Both of them should die. But the second scenario, verse 25, is they meet in the open country and this happens. And only the man dies. And so if it happens in the city, they're both stoned. If it happens in the country, only the man is executed. Now why? It's because there is a presumption of consensual sex if it happens in the city. And there's a presumption of rape if it happens out in the remote location. Now I want you to understand, these two examples are meant to provide a wise framework for judges to help deliberate cases like this. And so don't, don't nitpick the edge cases too much, but instead, I want you to think about the wisdom here. And, and I want you to think about the, the protection of the vulnerable here. Don't think we got modern uh, structures with glass windows, soundproof, spread apart. Think again about these little primitive structures with no glass windows jammed together. And remember that the, the, the entire covenant community shares this mindset, which may be the most important part. Not, not like we in this society, but in this covenant community, they shared this mindset. They were ready to help a virgin of Israel. They are ready to purge evil from their midst. And a girl that was raised up under the Torah would be taught to cry out for help. Because not only was her virginity at stake, but her very life, and not only from the aggressor, but from any appearance of consent. This law is good. Let's realize this, this law is good. And I want you to see how it, it protects the most vulnerable, how it protects the woman as the weaker vessel. And it presumes her innocence if a man seizes her when she is most vulnerable, which is out away from everybody, away from her friends and her neighbors. And think about how this law establishes this unmistakable boundary for consent. No really means no here, my friend. And, and women would be taught to do everything in their power to escape even just an uncomfortable situation. And if the boy doesn't hear that first no, the neighbor's going to hear the second one. And they're coming with rocks. You see? And think about how this law strongly discourages young men and women from being alone together. And that's good. You know why? Because that helps them avoid even the appearance of evil. It helps them avoid a deadly temptation. And it helps them avoid the danger of being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. Third case is sex with someone who is not married or not Betrothed. And this is exactly like the previous, except without the commitment. And I want you to notice how it's handled differently. And I want you to notice in verse 27, it says a man seizes a virgin who is not betrothed. And, and, and immediately that sounds like non-consensual non sex. It sounds like rape. But, but this is where I want to bring in a, a parallel passage. Same law, parallel in Exodus 22 where it says the man doesn't seize her. It says he seduces 
a virgin who is not betrothed. And the outcome is the same. So it's not the seizing or the seducing, it's the betrothed that makes the difference. So whether by rape or seduction, the penalty for sex with the unbetrothed is not death. The penalty is to pay the bride price and get a bride. The man that does this is required to pay the girl's father a bride that's hard to say. Bride price of 50 shekels. And he is required to marry the girl without any possibility for divorce ever. See this in verse 29. It says, she shall be his wife because he has violated her and he may not divorce her all his days. And your immediate reaction is probably, wait a minute, that's not good. That ain't good. Dude rapes a girl and all he's got to do is pay 50 bucks and she's forced to marry him? Like that, how can that be good? It's good. This law is good. First of all, it's, it's more than 50 bucks. And second, she's not forced to marry him. The parallel passage in Exodus says the father can refuse to give his daughter to the man who violated her. Okay? But I tell you what, this law is a strong deterrent. <laughs> this is a strong deterrent against both seduction and rape. In America, the average time served for rape is three and a half years. This law requires a man to care for this woman and his children for life. And in accordance with God's word, with all the covenant community behind it, helping enforce that. This law is good. This law protects the, the vulnerable and it provides vindication. Because this is one of the things we're heading towards in this last case. That virginity is expected in marriage. But this case says, verse 29, he violated her. That's gone. And so this act has practically excluded her from marriage. How is she going to provide for herself? This is not modern day America. Like, how is she going to provide for herself? And what if this act causes a pregnancy? Who's going to help care for this child? What happens when her parents die? This marriage would take care of her and any children forever. But now if the father refused the marriage, this law vindicates her name. And hopefully opens the door for a future marriage with somebody else. This law is good. God's law is good. Fourth case. Sex with a parent's spouse. Verse 30. To me, this is the simplest one of all. And I describe it as adultery with aggravating circumstances. It's adultery, yes, because they're having sex with somebody else's spouse, but the aggravating circumstances refers to the fact that it's with your father's wife, for crying out loud. And so think about, this is adultery breaking the seventh commandment that also breaks the fifth commandment, just shreds the fifth commandment about honoring your parents. And, and to me, that's what the last line means in verse 30, so that he does not uncover his father's Nakedness, a strange 
say in there, but, he, but it basically means that, man, the son has violated the father's most private place, the most private inner sanctum. The son has gone right in there and defiled it and brought shame to him in his own marriage bed. The son has exposed the father to one of the greatest shames a man can ever get from his son. And if that's not bad enough, this is adultery that God also considers incest. So think about that. Adultery that grossly dishonors your parents, that is also considered incest. How, how could it get any worse than that? Is it no wonder God has a special curse over there in Deuteronomy 27 for this very thing. And no wonder Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, man, this kind of sexual immorality is not even tolerated among the pagans. My goodness, get it out of the church. And so that's the first four cases. Before we jump into the, the last one, which is actually the first one, I hope a couple of things are, are clear already. One is that sex is a major part of the covenant of marriage and God is serious about it. If somebody's in a marriage covenant and you're part of breaking that covenant, you die violently. If you have any sex outside a marriage company uh, covenant, you have sought things within marriage. Therefore, you should marry. Therefore, you should marry. Sorry. And if you don't, as we see, you die violently. God does not play when you play around with marriage. God does not play when you play around with his institution of marriage and the things that belong in it. He does not allow it. He doesn't want you taking them out. Hebrews 13 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It's serious. So let's look at this last case. Verse 13. We have a married woman that's now been accused of premarital sex. We're not going to read it again, but I want to hit the highlights. Okay, Verse 13, a man and a woman get married. The marriage is consummated, as we'll see in verse 15. At some point in the marriage, the man begins to hate his wife. Verse 13. And the man accuses his wife of premarital infidelity in order to try to get a divorce. Now, two chapters from now in Deuteronomy, we're going to see some laws that suggest that a man can divorce his wife if, quote, he has found some indecency in her. And this is what he's trying to do. He's, out, he's ready to get out and he has found some indecency in her. So he's made up this accusation. And so now there's this public hearing, verse 15, with the elders of the city. And the husband plays the role of the prosecutor. And the father of the bride plays the role of the defense attorney. Verse 16. And the father presents evidence of his daughter's virginity. End quote. Verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, And they shall spread the cloak. Like here's the evidence. Dad comes in with the evidence. 
boom, he spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Man, what's that all about? This refers to a wedding ritual in Israel that was probably as common as walking down the aisle is for us. After the wedding, the marriage would be consummated not on a Caribbean honeymoon, but there locally. And a cloak or a bed sheet would be spread on the marriage bed, then presented to the parents after consummation. Blood on the cloak proves the bride's virginity. And the bride's parents would then keep that evidence to forever protect her against this sort of accusation. To protect her against this very thing. Now, if you don't understand what's going on here, ask somebody at the church. Even me if you have to. If you do know what's going on here, I want you to think about this wedding ritual. This is actually based on something God has created in the human body. God is a God of purpose. This is not a glitch in human anatomy. And before you start arguing that this is not a reliable method, this is not a reliable scientific method for determining virginity on a wedding night, please understand that might be true in some percentage of cases, especially in a society like ours where premarital purity means nothing. But this was serious business to God's covenant people. Mamas and daddies knew this was coming. Little girls knew this was coming as they looked forward to marriage. And marriage was a big deal. And purity was a big deal. And this ritual was a big deal. And believe me, these things got settled on wedding day. The cloak had blood, fine. All is well. We're married. If it didn't, it had to get settled right then. It had to be explained. It had to get worked out to everybody's satisfaction. Now the case we've got in front of us, that day's come and gone. I guess the dude's hoping they didn't have the evidence. But daddy's got the evidence. And the man is found guilty of lying. Guess what happens? He's flogged and he's fined and he is prevented from divorce. Look at verse 18. It says the elders shall, the elders shall take the man and they shall whip him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels. And so he's going to be publicly beaten. And this public beating is going to punish him and vindicate his accused wife. Which is a big deal because twice it says in this passage that he's brought a bad name. Quote, bad name on her. This is part of the reason he's being punished. Now he's got the bad name and she's vindicated. See the goodness in that? And the fine would cost him double what he's trying to get. Which is probably what he's doing. One of the things he's trying to do is get rid of this wife, get my $50 back. But instead, he got to pay double. And notice, he pays the money to the father. Not the bride. To the father. Why? Because this accusation also brought a bad name on the father. 
The ac- understand what the accusation is. The accusation is that this father raised a whore, yet he presented her as a, quote, virgin of Israel. And so the man pays a hefty fine to the father. And then this false accusation prevents this man from ever pursuing divorce again. Because he can't be trusted. And she needed protection. Why? Because this law is good. This law is good. And think about what's happened here. The accusing husband has broken the ninth commandment of bearing false witness. And we, we learned back in Deuteronomy that the penalty for bearing false witness is you're supposed to do to him what he tried to do to her. You're supposed to do to him what you tried to do to the accused. And so why is it this guy stoned? Because that's what ultimately he was trying to do to her. Why? Because the law is good. The lying husband is not put to death for the protection of his wife and his kids. Man, in, this, in this day, think about it. If the man was executed, now you've got a vulnerable wife with no husband and kids with no father. Instead, reputations are restored. The, a liar is publicly humiliated and families are le- legally intact for life. Now, what if she's guilty, though? What if he's not lying? If the woman is guilty of premarital sex, she is stoned to death on her father's doorstep. Look at verse 20. If the thing is true, then they, they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house. And the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones. I don't know if you have ever seen a public stone, but it is incredibly violent and disturbing. And it still occurs today. And that's all I'll say about that. But you need to feel the severity of this. You, you need to feel the severity of this punishment so you'll feel the severity of the sin in God's eyes. Right? This is not some sterile execution behind some curtain by lethal injection. This is a violent public execution by the men of the city. The, the, the covenant community is personally taking part in what God commands in verse 21. Purge the evil. Purge this sexual sin from your midst. This is exactly how God sees it. This is exactly how God sees all sexual sin. This is how we, brothers and sisters, should see all sexual sin. Sin, whether we see it in ourselves or whether we see it in others, we should see it as outrageous. We should see it as horrid. We should see it as evil. I mean, the language here couldn't be more strong. Look at verse 21. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel. That's outrageous. Why? Because she's whored in her father's house. Man, purge the evil from your midst. Man, we, we need to feel that. Society keeps us from feeling that. And the guilt and the wrath of God literally 
falls right on this poor little girl's head. And notice it falls right at her father's feet. The little girl is labeled as a whore. And she's executed on her daddy's porch. My goodness. Man, how, how far have we come from God's eternal righteous standard? Why does the stoning take place at, quote, the door of her father's house? Verse 21. It says because she's done an outrageous thing by whoring in her father's house. Now that does not mean that the sexual sin literally occurred at the family home. What it does mean though is it happened while she lived under her father's roof. While she was under his authority. While she was under his watch care. And it is clear that in God's sight, the father shares the blame and the shame of his daughter's sexual promiscuity. This is how God sees it. And this is a good place to start making some serious applications from this passage. I got four of them. Number one comes straight out of what we just, I just said. Guard your children. Guard your children, according to the word of God, parents share the responsibility and the shame of their sexually immoral child. Yes, it's the daughter's fault. Yes, it's your son's fault. But it's also mama and daddy's fault. You let them dress like that. You, you let them go to unsupervised places. You let them get too emotionally attached too soon. You let them go out alone with that boy or that girl. You let them get alone on the internet. And and, and are you surprised when you discover their sexual sin? By the way, as an older man and now a grandfather, I raise my hand and say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of all this. But it doesn't have to be that way for most of y'all. Man, there couldn't be a better time for this church to hear this sermon. I bet you we probably got over 120 children here that have yet to reach puberty. Now is the time, Mama. Now is the time, Daddy. Decide today that you will do everything in your power to guard the sexual purity of your children. Tell them to value marriage. Teach them to do that. Teach them to value modesty. Teach them to value virginity. Don't let them be tempted. Don't let them be seduced. Don't let them get into these compromising situations. Love them enough to guard their sexual purity with all your might. Second, guard yourself. And this goes for everybody, but I want to shoot straight at the unmarried, the unbetrothed. Guard yourself. Guard your reputation. Desire to be above reproach. This passage, I hope you see, puts a value on a good name. 
A good name. And I'm going to tell you, your good name, your reputation comes from a public perception. And I want you to be above reproach. Let there be no question where your heart lies regarding sexual sin. Dress modestly. Act modestly. Be very careful how you interact with members of the opposite sex. Not flirty, not touchy, not forward. Guard it. Treasure it. Guard your virginity. Nobody, you, I bet you've never heard anybody say that from a pulpit. Guard your virginity. Desire premarital purity with a passion. Listen to these stats. 90% of Americans are guilty of premarital sex. Only 5% of all brides are actually virgins. If God were to start stoning the sexually immoral in America, there would be nobody left. And man, losing your virginity for marriage, that's a badge of honor in our evil society. A badge of honor. But I'm going to tell you, in God's eyes, it is worthy of a violent death and an eternity in hell. Guys, young men, be in that minority. Girls, be in that holy minority. Honor God. Honor your own body. Honor your future spouse. Desire to wear white on your wedding day and not lie about it. And guard your eyes. Hate porn with a passion. Because it's not new. It's not new at all. People have been uncovering other people's nakedness since sin came into the world, but now it has reached epidemic proportions. 96% of young adults speak favorably about porn among their friends. 96%. of teens hide their online behavior from their parents. Parents? Do you know that? They're hiding it from you. You're hiding it from them. 64% of Christian men say they watch porn at least once a month. Friends, this is where it starts. Sexual sin starts with the eyes and grows in the heart. This is why Jesus says, tear out your eye, cut off your hand so you don't go to hell. This is why James says, desire gives birth to sin, sin gives birth to death. And the Proverbs say, don't play with fire, don't go near her door. Don't go, why are you down here? This stuff is waging war against your soul and you've got to see it as an eternal danger and you've got to hate it with a passion. You've got to purge this evil from your midst. Purge it from your personal midst by the power of God. Third application. Guard your marriage. And I'm going to repeat. Hate porn with a passion. It's not just young unmarried men. Half of married men admit to regularly watching porn. And that's some of you in this room. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it right now. Stop it today. 
Go to God, go to the throne of grace, and ask for power from heaven. Power from heaven to purge this evil from your midst. You need to hate it like your marriage depends on it because it does. You need to hate it because your soul depends on it because it does. Guard your eyes. Guard your heart. Beware of intimacy with members of the opposite sex. 21% of married people admit adultery. Never mind the ones that don't get caught or don't admit. 21%. Where does that start? It starts with dissatisfaction at home and a growing intimacy with that coworker or that friend. The one that really understands you. The one that listens. Man, you better be on guard for that. Sin is crouching at the door. Sexual sin is crouching at the door. You need to recognize when it's happening, you need to cut it off immediately. You've got to purge it from your midst. You've got to be alive to danger and sin in this sin-sex-saturated world. Last application, you need to guard the church. You hate this stuff in your house, in your heart, in your marriage, and in your church. We need to exhort one another. Like the Bible says, exhort one another every day about the dangers of this stuff, the deceitfulness of the sexual sin when you see it. And we got to understand and we got to practice loving yet holy and decisive church discipline. You do realize that excommunication is the new covenant version of old covenant stoning and execution. It should be kind and patient and loving, yet it's got to press for repentance. Sexual sin cannot be tolerated in the church, Paul says. You are not to associate with the sexually immoral that claim to be Christians, Paul says. You are to judge those in the church, Paul says. And just like Old Covenant Israel did in Deuteronomy 22, the New Testament commands us to purge the evil from your midst. 1 Corinthians 5. Now, all this stuff screams for the gospel. And it just screams for the gospel. It just cries out like Isaiah, oh God, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, hands, hearts, minds, bodies, everything. Man, think about it. Under the law of Moses, stuff we're studying right now. What happened if you're found guilty of sexual sin? Straight rock party. Not the kind you're looking forward to. Stoning. No appeal. No forgiveness. No sacrifice. But here's the good news. God forgives sexually immoral people. Such were some of you. Such are some of you. God forgives the sexually immoral. Jesus gave the adulterous woman at the well eternal life. He told the adulterous woman caught in the act, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He told the prostitute that was wiping his feet with tears, you've been forgiven much. Your sins are forgiven. And she knew how much. 
She knew it. That's why she loved him so much. And let me tell you something. We're all here guilty enough to condemn a hundred men. But the good news is that God forgives the sexually immoral. Why? How? Because the blood of Jesus makes us pure. Jesus is the the great husband, right? He's the great husband. He's the bridegroom of Scripture. He's not like the man in Deuteronomy. He's not like the man who hated his bride. He doesn't cast us out because of impurity or infidelity or sexual immorality or even because he gets tired of us. And guess what? Nobody proves their purity with their own blood like the virgins of Israel had to do. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. We are only made pure by the blood of Christ. We are, it's not our own blood that makes us whiter than snow. It's, it's not our own righteousness that makes us spotless and without blemish. It's the shed blood of God's own Son that cleanses us from all sin. Like the rocks that rained down on the adulterers in Israel, God's wrath for our sexual sin rained down on Christ because He died for the ungodly. Therefore, think about this. Who shall ever bring a charge against you? Think about how that connects here. On Judgment Day, when Satan or anybody else tries to bring a charge of impurity to any of those that are married to Christ, what's going to happen? Like the Father in Deuteronomy, our Father in Heaven, He's going to come to our defense. He's going to prevent, present the blood evidence of His only begotten Son. He's going to prove our purity. He's going to prove our forgiveness. And guess what? There will never be a chance for divorce. Never be a chance for accusation. The evidence is in. Not guilty. Not guilty. Pure. Spotless. And without blemish. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is going to condemn? Is is Jesus is the one who died? More than that, he's the one that's raised. More than that, he's the one right now interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, nobody. Not even you. Not even your sin and your unfaithfulness. Because even though such were some of you, you have been washed. And there is now, therefore now, no condemnation. For those married to Christ. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. There is no stone for those married to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and we are not. And we would be absolutely undone. And like David said, you would be right in your judgment against us. If you should mark iniquity, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. God, we praise you for your mercy. Because by the time we realized it, it was too late. We were cut off and without hope. And you came and found us. And you cleaned us. 
And you made us whiter than snow and gave us eternal life with Christ. We owe you everything. You're worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Help us. Help us to worship you and serve you and serve you and be obedient with our whole heart. Let us not be continually found in sexual immorality. Lord, cleanse your people. In Jesus' name, amen.